Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. Before we get going and reflecting on some of the big themes whirling around at the moment, the emerging tensions between the government and the scientists on SAGE, the Brexit talks and a new director general for the BBC, some other kind of light-hearted themes as well to have a laugh. Don't forget that uh, the virtual show, uh, Rock and Roll Politics, is back live on June the 17th. Not very far away now. God knows what will have happened by then. A lot, I suspect. You can get the tickets on the King's Place website, so please do so and join me and we'll have some fun. That's Wednesday, June the 17th. A set at a time, by the way, that if there's any football on that night, you won't miss it. Anyway, back to what's going on. I think it's really one of the kind of themes that's surfacing is Johnson made very, very clear that the government had a strategy to exit from lockdown. And that strategy was to be guided. I've talked about this before. It wasn't to be guided by the science. We've been through the kind of evasive nature of the term, the science. But to be guided by that R rate. If it's, if it's moving towards one, above one, uh, you know, you then have to lock down again. And that seemed a sensible strategy that you would follow the R rate. And that, in the end, sort of ends all agonising about what to do, all kind of individual judgments about what to do. You follow the R rate. And so if the R rate is falling, as it is in many countries, places like New Zealand have never been safer, it seems to me. And indeed, some European countries too. People are living into be about 500 in these countries. But here, of course, it's not straightforward for all kinds of reasons. And the numbers still getting this wretched disease, the numbers still dying from it, are high, and relatively speaking. And the R rate, I love this thing about the R rate, is transitioning from four to three. That's government speak. This transitional period is a new sort of mathematical entity. But actually, some evidence suggests the R rate is rising and in some parts of the country is above one. And yet, in spite of this, 
the government is easing lockdown constraints speedily. Matthew Hancock says we're doing this very cautiously. It's actually not that cautious. And anyway, lots of people aren't paying attention now. They have clocked Dominic Cummings, did what he wanted, and they're doing what they want to do. But it does mean there is even more sort of incoherence in terms of a government strategy. Because having declared your being guided by the R-rate, you then act irrespective of the R-rate. You wonder quite what the strategic guidelines are beyond a sort of panic-stricken, instinctive, day-by-day, hour-by-hour response. And what is interesting, it's been interesting throughout, is that some of those on the SAGE committee, these gurus who have been cited throughout this drama, as a kind of protective shield for the government, are beginning to break free and are no longer willing always to act as that protective shield. I don't know whether the two great gurus, Witty and Valance, will dare to break free openly. They Even they, though, have hinted at some unease about speedy lifting of the lockdown, but some of the others have said so quite clearly that they are very anxious about the speedy nature of the lockdown because the evidence is that the virus is still out there. And yet it appears that Boris Johnson has decided that the lockdown will be lifted very quickly indeed. The Sunday Times was briefed, I'm told, very accurately and authoritatively that the lifting will continue. Soon people will be back in pubs, restaurants, albeit with a degree of social distancing, but perhaps down to one metre rather than two metres, and so on. Shops reopening and all the rest of it. And you wonder quite what will happen if the R rate does unequivocally go above one. At the moment, some scientists are saying it is below that, even in the regions where others are saying it is above that. But if they are no longer guided by the R-rate, what? Evidently, economic pressures are determining part of the response. But if that is the case, that they've shifted from being guided by the degree to which this virus poses a threat, they need to tell us. They need to say, actually, sod all that. Jobs are at stake, which they are, and we are going to prioritise getting the economy moving again and forget about the R-rate. At which point, there is an argument to be made for it, and they will have to do so. But I wonder where that leaves SAGE, where clearly their priority is the science, the famous the science. And they will have made clear that they believe the exit from this prison of a lockdown should be very cautious and guided by things like the R8. I noticed there have been some press conferences now, those famous weird Downing Street briefings, where a cabinet minister has been alone, that the scientists haven't been there. It's as if the government doesn't trust the scientists to deliver the message they want anymore. Now, perhaps it is inevitable that in the end, the pretense that politics played no part in this, that the ideas in the heads of Johnson and Cummings were guided purely by objective scientific advice, 
I was always going to be blown apart. And you might as well be transparent about it by having not even a scientist standing on the podium at a Downing Street briefing. At least they'll be shorter without the scientists there. But it is an important junction in this saga when the scientists twitch more openly. I have absolutely no doubt that privately they've been twitching all the way through this. And there will be some fascinating insights when an inquiry comes up as to the degree to which those top scientists dance to the wishes of politicians at the very beginning. In other words, you could find the science to fit with a libertarian outlook. Similarly, you could find the science to justify a much earlier lockdown. And all the evidence suggests that would have been the right way to go. But that's in the past. What appears to be happening now is the scientists can't join the dance any longer. Now, it's a dilemma, it would be for any government, about the degree to which you jeopardise economic benefits, which pay for the NHS and everything else, in order to make sure this virus doesn't take off again. But that was their declared guiding policy, that they would be determined by the uh, R-rate, and it doesn't seem as if they are. But what is even weirder is having decided to prioritise the economy, and as you can say, you can make the argument for it, I believe, by the way, they were right in the first place. You should be guided by the R-rate. This virus is not going away, and therefore you need to be guided as to how far you can go by the degree to which it's threatening to kill people big time. But anyway, they have decided on the economy, and at the same time are pursuing a hard Brexit in these trade talks in a way that is just so reckless on so many different levels. Britain's not prepared for a no-deal Brexit. Britain's actually not prepared for one where tariffs are applied left, right and centre, especially to food. It means the whole country will have to have the kind of barriers required to impose the tariffs and all the trade will be dragged out that was once free-flowing. Supply chains will be threatened. And Whilst prioritising the economy, as they say they are, they are jeopardising it by this pursuit of a hard Brexit. It gives you a real insight into their thinking. Clearly, they don't believe a hard Brexit will jeopardise the economy. Johnson is probably worried because he was never a crusading Brexiteer. Remember, he wrote two articles, one in favour of staying in the common market or the European Union, and one leaving. So he always has had his doubts. But the comings of this world are crusaders. And they clearly don't believe the evidence that suggests that the UK is not ready for a no-deal Brexit or a hard Brexit, some sort of deal involving tariffs all over the place. They clearly ignore all of that and genuinely believe it will be a liberated island that takes on the rest of the world, that it will become a sort of high-tech LA very quickly by leaving what it regards as a sclerotic European Union. The UK will flourish and will flourish almost immediately. I think even they accept there will be problems in January, February, March, but after that it will kind of be an amazing economic success story. 
But what happens to these sectors, the farming sector, the manufacturing sector, and what will be the reaction of voters when food prices go up and in some cases become unavailable in shops, as will be the case in January, February? I don't even think they fully believe the idea that the whole thing will be blamed on the virus and they can just get away with it. But why be masochistic? As I say, I think they think people will say, oh, wow, okay, bit of hardship for a month or two, but then liberation and a booming economy. And it's going to be a very, very important few months on Brexit. The idea that Brexit was done by winning the election was always a myth. And this period is the key one. He has, Johnson and his negotiators, a huge amount of political space in the United Kingdom at the moment because the Labour Party is too scared to express any discontent about the progress of the trade talks because Keir Starmer knows they lost all those pro-Brexit seats and doesn't want to say a word that implies he hasn't listened to those pro-Brexit voters. I think that's wise. He could scream from the rooftops now and he would just piss off all those voters again without changing the government policy. He hasn't got the numbers in the House of Commons to do it. He's almost making a virtue out of the fact that the government has a massive majority. In fact, I heard him on his uh, LBC programme, his phone-in programme, Call Sakir. And he actually said that, look, they've got a majority of over 80. We've lost an election. There's not much we can do about it. But I think his calculation is that they themselves will run into a series of brick walls with their perverse timetable of negotiating a trade deal via Zoom with Britain's biggest market. And therefore, he is just waiting for that to happen rather than to scream now. Not that he ever screams. Uh, he hasn't got that emotional range. He's been very impressive. Uh, but actually, he doesn't need to scream, but he does need more tonal variety over time. Keir Starmer. I mean, he was good on call, Sakir, but even there, you could feel at times a bit more kind of tonal variety, conversational style will become essential, actually, uh, at some point. But anyway... They have that political space to do what they want. But in that, will they move towards a trade deal which really damages the economy right away and in a way that will be different to the virus? Food has been readily available in shops. They're going to try and help the car sector with some stimulus packages in July and all the rest of it. So if all of these things suddenly suffer it will be a different kind of crisis to the virus. And I think they will find it hard to blame it on the virus. You know, sorry, food has got up, terrible. Uh, this virus is affecting everything. Doesn't quite ring true. Mind you, a lot of things he says doesn't quite ring true. But this one won't, I suspect, to the voters in that so-called red wall that they treasure understandably. It was a huge electoral triumph to get those voters over to the Tory party, and they don't want to alienate them. And I think there are dangers too in their crusade of alienating business leaders. 
it was one of the really interesting things about that whole period between 1992 and 1997. After the government fell out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992, John Major and the Conservative Party was never ahead in the opinion polls again up until the 97 election. And one of the groups that they had alienated were their natural supporters, business leaders, who turned in quite large numbers to Labour by 1997, largely over Europe. Now they are not only alienating those business leaders, but others. It's fascinating following the campaign of the National Farmers Union. Many of their members, natural, loyal Conservatives, are now up in arms as they see their sector hugely jeopardised by the deal being negotiated over Brexit. And although politics never repeats itself, and the past is a really treacherous guide to trying to work out what happens next, there are some echoes with 1992, and it's to do with a perception of competence. It's very difficult for Labour to win ideological battles in England with the media and so many other assumptions and orthodoxies. Ideological battles are rarely won. They won the 1945 election on a kind of ideological battle partly, but it followed unique circumstances. Attlee being a deputy prime minister, the end of the war, the role of the state having changed, that applies now, of course. But they do win when there is a sense that this natural party of government in England, the Conservative Party, not Scotland and Wales normally, is seen as incompetent. And that then gives the space for the Labour Party to come in. Harold Wilson's pitch basically in 64 and 66 was, we're more competent than this lot. You know, when Harold Macmillan sacked a lot of cabinet ministers in the night of the long knives, Wilson popped up and said, I see the Prime Minister has sacked half his cabinet, the wrong half. And that was a pitch towards saying, this Tory government, this tired Tory government is incompetent. You never quite express it like that because it's not galvanising, but that was in effect it. And that was the new Labour pitch in 97. Again, they never said it like that. But basically, um, part of their pitch, people like Tony Blair would say, look, you know, they waste money right? Their their public spending is unproductive. We're going to be productive. Basically, it was a pitch to competence. He, he used it sometimes. You know, we're for social justice and economic competence. Now, actually, when you think about it, no one would pitch for economic incompetence and social injustice. But that was, in effect, what he was saying. And with the Tory party falling apart in 97, as they were in the final months of the Macmillan era, and Alec Douglas Hume and all of that, it was a pitch to competence. And if there is a sense with Britain having this huge, shocking death toll with a strategy over how to deal with this virus changing on an hourly basis, and if Brexit does have the economic impact that all independent forecasters have said it will have, I mean, even supporters say the immediate aftermath of a no-deal Brexit will be tough. They just predict uh, paradise consequently afterwards. The issue of competence is one that clearly 
plays to Starmer, who hasn't learned yet how to rouse the passions, but can clearly already claim competence. So they need to watch it with Brexit, even though they have this huge acreage of political space with that massive majority. It's very interesting on Twitter. You know, people tweet. I do it actually sometimes. I think, right, this is going to shake the foundations, this tweet. Majorities in the House of Commons can shake foundations. That's where all the power is. Not on Twitter, not even in newspapers, although they continue to exert uh, disproportionate influence on broadcasters and therefore the wider electorate. The power lies in big majorities in the House of Commons. It's what Labour sometimes never quite clocks, that these elections are make or break. And once you've got those majorities, you can do what you like, certainly at first. And this government shows every intention of doing what it likes, whatever the consequences. Oh, I mentioned the broadcasters there. Yeah, the BBC have got a new director general. Tim Davey, and he issued the usual kind of statement, uh, commitment to impartiality and all the rest of it. I can I can hear the interviews with whoever becomes head of news if there are changes. You know, absolutely impartial. That's our main guide. And of course, we must speak for all the people all of the time. And that means going to other parts of the country and finding out what they feel, all those kind of cliches. But you've got to think more deeply about what it is to be impartial that very fundamental constraint actually duty and how you can shed light on issues while being impartial i mentioned that last week so i won't go on about it it is a big big theme and as i say the only one who i think pulled it off the director generals of recent decades was john burt who had this absolute clear mission to explain and that meant you can sort of shed light without being in any way violating the rules of impartiality but you what you can't do is all the time try oh, let, let's let's slaughter the opposition we're going to be ahead on this by doing this and all that kind of thing that kind of tabloid machismo only works actually if you're allowed to express views you know so the sun can generate a front page wave but it's full of views that you can't do at the BBC but you can do other things but it needs a kind of depth of thinking and uh, let's hope he can do it you know he's it's Tim Davey Pepsi Cola uh, but BBC 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 life uh, almost I, I don't know what the criteria were and I think they found it very hard to get a wide range of candidates given the scale of the task the hostility of the current number 10 machine the hostility of a lot of newspapers. But I think it needs big, brave, thoughtful figures willing to put the case in a public arena, willing to put their name to statements when they are made rather than anonymously, as was the case with the criticism of Emily Maitlis, some anonymous press release put out. Big figures who really put the case for the BBC. And they've got a lot going for them. I'm quite envious of Tim Davey. But they did struggle, I'm told, to get a wide range of candidates. Anyway, that's it for this week. Do, as I say, please get tickets for the virtual live rock and roll politics show where we can have more of an exchange and conversation. I'm told 
we can get back to what we do at the live shows with a few of our inaccurate predictions and all kinds of other things as well. So that's Wednesday, June the 17th. And thank you very much for tuning in to this podcast. It'll be back again next week. And then I say the live virtual show on the 17th. Thank you very much. 